Amen. Man, you can't ask for a better way to jump into this passage. Um, by the way, some people have started noting, we, we had um, our uh, ministry huddle this last Wednesday, and some people are starting to note um, that, the, that during this 1030 service, it gets pretty full. And uh, so you may have caught on to that. Make sure that when you come to the 1030 service, you might go ahead and squeeze in towards the middle. When you get here, you might as well just go ahead and do that because um, some weeks it's way full. And, um, and also, if you're the kind of person who's like, I don't really like crowds. Well, there's much more freedom for moving around in the 9 o'clock service. Um, if, you, if you've got the freedom to show up a little bit earlier, um, there's a little more freedom in regards to moving around and where you sit and that kind of stuff. So feel free to do that as well. Um, we had a great time on Wednesday night and a, and a wonderful service last Sunday. It is such a blessing to get to sit and learn um, on a Sunday morning for me to get to do that. And so for John... Wherever they, oh, there he is. Wherever he, had his, he was leaning down, so he's like, he just disappeared. He's just gone. Well, he goes, a rapture, and only John's gone. Um, uh, the, uh, um, the, 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 the being able to sit and learn and listen and to, to lay the groundwork. And um, then if you, get, if you get a chance to, to develop and learn and teach at some point in your life, especially through Scripture, I highly recommend it. You'll learn more than anybody else will, I promise. And and, uh, and so to get to, to get to be a part of that, but it is shocking when people do preach that you go, Hey, I want you, you know, 35 minutes and I want you to cover these six verses or eight verses. And, and the first panic thought they have is I'll never be able to stretch that in a 35 minutes. And then when they get done, there's three verses left over. Um, because especially the book of John, it's so rich. So we're going to jump back a couple of verses then to pass it into verses that John referenced, but just ran out of time, didn't really get to unpack for us. And so we're going to do that. But I'm also, from the first service, I'm actually switching the order kind of of the service because some of the main points I want to make, I feel like in the first service kind of got lost in the middle. And so um, I've switched some stuff up. And so if it, if it seems a little less, um, I don't know, organized than normal, which, I mean, that's saying something, right? And so um, that's, that's probably why. So you have Jesus in this passage. In the beginning of John 10, he's gone through this beautiful teaching about the, the, the shepherd and the sheep. And, and now in the second half here of John 10, here we are at, at Hanukkah. He's in Jerusalem for Hanukkah, and, um, and he's engaging in these conversations. He's kind of minding in his business. He gets, he gets confronted. Um, he, he begins this, <coughs> you know, the, the, who do you say you really are? He says, I tell you, but you don't believe it. I showed you, but you don't understand it. It's kind of the old, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you type of language, right? And so... Um, John laid the groundwork for the rest of John 10 and then ran out of time. So by the end of the day, you may think I focus too much time on this. Um, and I may think the same thing, but um, it's, I just couldn't imagine what to cut from some of this stuff. And so we're going to cover a little bit of ground here, starting in John 10, starting verse 28. I give that this is Jesus speaking, by the way, which is significant. This is Jesus speaking. That seems normal for you if you're a church person, but try to put your mind in the people who, hear, who are listening to him as Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 32, 33 years old, in the temple, wandering around, is speaking these words. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father... My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, that seems weird. The audience goes, well, whose hand is it, yours or the Father's, right? How does this work? Jesus says, Jesus, so Jesus clarifies, okay, see how you're confused with that? I and the Father are one. 
He's drawing a line in the sand here. It's possible that throughout this passage, so remember, remember what, what uh, John said last week, John Keeling said last week, that, that, that this is a celebration, but it's also a, a rememory. This is to look back, to look back, to be reminded of this. So the people of Israel had allowed, the collaborators had allowed the Greeks to come in and, and the Greeks had destroyed, essentially destroyed temple worship. They'd put up a temple, uh, an altar to Zeus or a, a statue to Zeus, an idol of Zeus. And then they had slaughtered pigs on the altar to destroy the temple of the Jews. And the Jews had not fought this until finally a family started an uprising and conquered this. And so this is very much so, this is a reminder to the Jewish people. This is a celebration of consecration. The new consecration of the temple, the new sanctification of the temple, the temple set apart, set aside for only one thing, to worship only one God. And it's a reminder of the fact that the Jewish people fall into two groups, those who are with us and those who are against us, and there's no middle ground. And so Jesus here is drawing numerous lines in the sand. He's been doing this since John 7. And to come to this place to these people and imply that they're on the wrong side of the line, that they're on the collaborator side, is not going to sit well with them. And that seems to be at least part of what he's doing. But more importantly than that, he is making a very clear statement about who he is. It's clear enough that the Jewish, the Jewish population who he's speaking to, it says in verse 31, so the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They've, they've tried this before. And they're going to try it again. They pick up stones to stone him. Now, I don't remember if it was, John, it was you and I talking after the service or one of the things, but where do these stones come from is a question. Was that us talking? So there's an interesting question, like, why are there stones laying around in the temple? Is it that they just keep some handy in case they need to stone someone to death? Possible, actually. Another plausible idea is that these are stones that have never been cleared off, either as a reminder or just out of laziness, it's no one's job or something, have never been cleared off from either the destruction of the Greeks or the reconsecration by the Maccabees 160 years before. And so it would, how ironic, if it's ironic, how literarily powerful, if they're picking up rocks that the Maccabeans left behind during the celebration of Hanukkah to stone their Messiah. There's something very powerful about that. It's supposition. We can't know, but it's possible. Jesus answered them, so it's funny, they pick up stones against to, again to stone him, and Jesus answers them. But what he's answering apparently is them picking up stones to stone him. And he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answer him, it's not for good works we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. So again, just, just if you ever run into that conversation, you know, on social media or wherever, when people say, Jesus never claimed to be God... Just keep in mind, the people who he was speaking to are so sure he's claiming to be God, they're going to kill him for it. So it may be that we're misunderstanding him if we don't think he claimed to be God. His audience at the time knew exactly what he was claiming, which was to be one with God, to be God. So Jesus says to answer them, I've shown you these many good works for which you're going to stone me. They said, no, you being man, make yourself God. Okay. So Jesus has been trying to get them to pay attention to the works. Because here's the deal. If, if someone claims to be God, they either are or they aren't. People have claimed it. Many people have claimed it throughout time. Either they are or they aren't. This should be relatively easy to verify. I mean, it's, if you are, then, then you should, there should be things you do that normal people can't do. 
If you're God, then surely as God, there are things you can pull off that the rest of us can't. Do, do the laws of nature respond to your authority? That'd be a pretty good sign. So if you go outside and it's storming and you say, stop storming. If it stops storming, then I probably should at least pay attention to your divinity claim, right? If you go, I'm God, and I'm like, no, you're not. And you go, ready? Watch this. Storm. <sighs> okay, wow. Maybe. Stop. Okay, stop. You might go, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Keep talking. So then, you, then what you're going to do is you're going to go, I mean, so how about things people with born with a disability? Can you, can you do anything with that? Because we know other people, that just doesn't get fixed. So you might heal a person born blind. You might walk on water. You might feed thousands of people with very little food. You might, you might do stuff like that if you really are God walking the planet as a human being. That you might do some of these kind of things. And Jesus is saying, listen, I've given you plenty of evidence that I'm not normal. I've given you plenty of evidence that there's something supernatural about me. I'm not like the rest of you. That's pretty clear. You've seen these things. And they don't even argue it, do they? No, no, no. We've seen the signs. That's not what we're mad at you about is the signs. We're mad about you because of your words. Now, just stop and imagine a culture in which your words are more important than your deeds. Shouldn't have to imagine very hard. (laughs) That your words are more important than your deeds when you go, the fact that you claim something is the problem. It's not what you show that matters. It's what you seem to be that we don't that we don't approve of. It's not what you actually are. So yeah, you perform these miracles, you do these amazing things. We we agree with that, but we still don't like the fact that you're claiming to be God. So he's going to respond to them. <laughs> he's going to say, so in verse 34, Jesus responds to them. Now wait a minute. He says, "Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods?" That's a phrase. It's, it's a phrase from the Psalms. I'm explaining. He says, "Is that not in scripture?" If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture, scripture cannot be broken. Okay, so let me stop. So if you remember, our goal, part of our goal is to be a good first century Jewish audience. Um, we don't need to become Jews, but if we're going to understand the Bible, it helps us to understand their perspective. It's why we spend so much time laying the groundwork, laying the context so that we get this. As we understand the coolest movement, in, in my opinion, in Christianity in the last thousand years is re-understanding the Bible and Jesus as a Jew. It's changed a lot of our understanding of Scripture to go back and and interpret Jesus as a Jew rather than as a Greco-Roman, rather than as a Hellenist. And it's it's opened our eyes to so much. Um, it's why now, and by the way, if you're if you're so if you're really if you're one of those families who's really stressing going, do we go to Israel this year or not? Let me just help you out. It's full. So you don't have to stress about it for this year. Uh, maybe in twenty twenty or twenty twenty one you can go. But right now it's it twenty nineteen's Class is full. Um, but part of why we do trips to Israel is to lay context that you go stand on a place and you go, oh, here's where that happened. It's an actual place right here. It's very cool to do that. And it brings some, some life to the context of, of what we're reading, what we're studying. It's why we do a lot of that. So here we have this. So one of the things we have to recognize is that for the Jewish mind in the first century, the Psalms, this is still true for the Jews today, but the Psalms are, are so important to them that, that most of them would have known most of the Psalms beginning to ending probably by heart. And they're that important. And certainly they would have known them well enough to recognize them just from a phrase. So we have, we have an equivalent to that in our culture. Um, it's movie quotes. That I can say just a little bit of a movie quote and the entire movie immediately begins to flood back to your mind if you've seen it. And sometimes, even if you've never seen the movie, you still know the quote. 
Um, that's how, so because we spend all our time doing that kind of entertainment media, they spend all of their time reading the Psalms. So if I say, go ahead, make my day, I'll be back. I could have been a contender. You can't handle the truth. We're going to need a bigger boat. Where we're going, we don't need roads. Here's looking at you, kid. You're killing me, Smalls. I'm Spartacus, shaken, not stirred. Wax on. Houston, if you build it. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. Right? To infinity. That's right. There's no place like. And, of course, my favorite, no, I am your father. Right? These are, that's just, that took just seconds, by the way, to rattle off a whole bunch that everybody knows every, in our culture. Understand that if I say a phrase like, I said, you are God's, that his audience goes immediately to Psalm 82 in their mind. They know exactly what passage he's talking about, and they start doing the work in their brain. Literally, one, one commentator I read said, this is Jesus stalling. All he has to do is start a psalm, and now all of them are going like, okay, which psalm? And then we've got to work through, and they work through the... And by the time Jesus is gone, right? Like, that's not how this one plays out, by the way. But, but this is a... This is... In Psalm 82, this is the one that Jesus references. Listen to this. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundation of the earth is shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then the writer of the psalm writes a a summary verse here. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, this is strange to us, too, because we've been raised on this kind of Western idea that there's one God, and that's true, then there's only one God, like God, capital G God. But, but we've also been raised to think of all the little G gods as being false concepts, equal to idols. And as we've understood the Jewish faith in new ways in the last hundred years or so, we've begun to realize that's not how the Jews saw it at all. That the Jews saw this, this pantheon of created beings, Little G gods, like in this passage. Little G gods, spiritual creatures, spiritual created powerful creatures on whom God has assigned all kinds of authority and power. That's why when they rebel against him, that's how you get Satan is through a rebellion by these supernatural, angelic, demonic powers. These spiritual beings that create his divine counsel. It's hard for us because the Jewish mind is very different than ours. But you can see it all through scripture. Without going into detail of a lot of them, you have like, um, you have this thing in Hebrews, I mean, not in Hebrews, you have this thing um, that we see in the, in the Ten Commandments where it's like, hey, you have uh, the first commandment, which we've all, we usually take the first two commandments as redundant. You shall have no other gods before me, second commandment. You will make no idols to worship. But for the Jewish mind, those are two very different commandments. One is, you don't worship any of this divine counsel, these angelic, these demonic, these great, powerful, spiritual, created beings that do run different nations of the world, that do have authority and power. In Psalm 82, what you have is God having a staff meeting, and he's chewing out his staff. He's meeting with his divine counsel, and he's calling them on the carpet for how they have messed up his creation. He's given them responsibility, and they're messing it up, and he's mad about it. He ends by saying, though you are gods, the sons of the living God, you will die like men. 
He's threatening to snuff them out like men. It's a, it's a powerful passage. That's the idea. And Jesus is going to say, okay, you're willing to accept that there are these, quote, sons of God that you've all, been, you've all read in Psalm 82, these powerful spiritual creatures. You're willing to accept them and that their title is the sons of God. But you're not willing to accept that the one who God set apart to do this mighty work in your presence and you won't let me have the title son of God? You're hypocrites is what he's saying. You're willing to accept it. We see it all over. Again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. If you want to research this more, one of the, some of the places where this research is being well done is by um, a, a couple of people on, a, on what's called the Naked Bible Podcast and the Bible Project are both places where this is where good research is being done on, on this stuff and how it applies to Scripture. And more and more people are realizing, well, this is how we should have been interpreting these passages all along. But because we are Western thinkers and not Eastern thinkers like Jews, it's, it's hard for us. Um, notice, for example, in Psalm 89 is another one of the clear ones. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. The Jewish mindset isn't that there weren't other things that would call themselves gods, that there weren't other spiritual beings who had great power. It's that none of them are like him. The Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. That's, that's what makes him significant is he is the one who reaches out to us. He is the one who loves us. He is the one who seeks us. And he is the one who created all of them. And he is the one who will judge them and us. He is different. He is distinct. He is almighty. They are merely created. And that may be weird to us. We immediately think like, well, why would he bother? Why doesn't God just govern everything himself? But you can ask the same question about why God doesn't, why he isn't the husband to your wife. Why he isn't the father to your children. Why he isn't the preacher for your church. Apparently God enjoys letting us be involved in his work. And that includes spiritual beings that he allows them and enjoys them being involved in his work. And when they get it wrong, he calls them out just like he does in Psalm 82. And Jesus is saying, you're willing to accept them as the sons of God. But I, who am one with almighty God, with the father himself, you're not willing to give me the title son of God. Bunch of hypocrites. That's what he's going to say. Case by case, literally, it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing. When we read about these characters in, you know, in English, in, in freshman English, Zeus and Aphrodite or Ra or Baal, or we learn about Allah or someone like that. How many of those are truly great spiritual powers under God's divine counsel who maybe who have rebelled against him? And how many of them are just idols created by man? We don't know. The Bible says, don't worship any of them. Don't look to any of them. So that's what Jesus is saying in 36. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. So this is what's fascinating as we talk about this, Paul, um, uh, Paul McKenzie, and as we were talking about this, he pointed out this word consecrated. This is, this is not a meaningless word at Hanukkah. Think about that. This is at the feast of Hanukkah and Jesus refers to himself as the consecrated one. What are they celebrating at Hanukkah? The reconsecration of the temple. 
And Jesus is saying, once again, this concept of consecration. Consecration isn't a concept. It's a person. It's me. I'm not consecrated by the Maccabeans. I'm consecrated by God the Father. Set apart for this special activity. And it's right in front of you. And you're missing it. Because you're worried. You're not looking at the works that I'm doing. The works prove the reality of this. That's what he's saying here. And he's right. They're, they're missing it. They're gonna, we're going to catch up with that next week, Lord willing. But I want to touch on what part of why this really matters for us. Especially if, if, you're, if you are already a believer. If you're already a Christian, this may be fascinating and powerful. But, but really to go, what is, this, what is this playing out for us? And I, I want to take a second and go back. I want to go back to that first passage, um, and it's, if you guys don't have it ready, it's okay, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the, the 28 again. I give eternal life, and they, will ne- and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is, this is, of course, is a common passage that is used in a conversation that is often called the, the once saved, always saved conversation that happens among Baptists in the Baptist world. It's rightfully considered one of the most significant passages in this conversation. I'll show why in a minute. It's really best understood as the doctrine of security. The question is this. How secure is the salvation that God has given you? How safe are you? How confident are you that it will still be there on the day of judgment? Versus will you somehow lose it along the way? And, and I was raised in a church that taught that you could, when I was younger, you, that you could lose this salvation. I've referenced that many times um, in the Wesleyan tradition that you could lose that. You could have a salvation and then through your own decision making, your own sin, your own rebellion, your own defiance, you could then lose that. And it wasn't until seminary that I actually decided to dig into and decide what I really, surely, truly believed about it. So I went on a little bit of an adventure digging through scripture to find it. And Funny enough, a lot of times when I do that, I end up coming at the end going, yeah, I still don't know exactly what I believe on this. Like, here's where I fall, but I could easily be wrong about this. This one wasn't one of those. Let me read just a few passages to begin to to lay the groundwork. For example, in Galatians 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the master of all. But under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This is one of the main pictures in scripture of being united with Christ in the father is that we're adopted like a child. It's the ultimate expression of being chosen that you are not my child. And then you are my child. Paul references it again in Romans eight for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out Abba father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Um, a year ago, when we were looking in John chapter 1. And you may remember, you remember that? Well, that was a long time ago. John 1 says, John 1 verse 12. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, but not the will of man, 
but the will of God. Think about the prodigal, the story of the prodigal. At what point in the story that Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal, does the prodigal, and by the way, I think the prodigal son story is mostly about the elder son, but we're not teaching on that today. That's very applicable to us, by the way. The elder son is really who nails us. But the, the prodigal son, so the, at what point in this process does the prodigal cease to be the son of the father? Is it when he defies him, humiliates him, because there's nothing more humiliating in the Jewish culture than for a son to demean the father in a public way like this? In this shame and honor culture, it, this is so humiliating that some people believe the reason the father, part of why the father runs to meet the son, is that if the townsfolk had gotten to the son first, they would have stoned him to death for the humiliation he brought on his family. So the father not only is running out there, but he's running out there to protect his son's life maybe. But surely it's at least because of the father's love for his son. Maybe it's when the son is, is whiling away with, with sin. Maybe that's when he stops becoming the son of the father. Is that when it happens? Is it when he defies the father? Is it when he humiliates the father? Is it when he, when he shames himself to the father? Because he thinks his identity has changed. He thinks he's coming home as a slave to the father, no longer a son. But the passage teaches us that he is wrong. He can be the rebellious son of the father. He can be the disconnected son of the father. He could be a poor son of the father, but he cannot not be a son of his father. This language is is pretty clear in my opinion. Consider the message of the book of Hebrews, the ultimate, Jesus being the ultimate prophet, the ultimate messenger, the ultimate lawgiver, the ultimate priest, the ultimate covenant, the ultimate sacrifice. So when I I turned in this sermon, I guess on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, uh, um, because I I send it to the the leadership, the the, um, executive staff team and to David, and David starts turning it into slides to be put up on the screen, all that kind of stuff. Um, Ephesians, Hebrews, um, Hebrews was on my mind, Hebrews nine eleven. but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, meaning Jesus, by the way, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So there's a, there's a tabernacle. There's a, there's a temple in, in God's throne room. And that's where Jesus is. And it was through his own blood that he entered that. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleansing your consciousness, your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Hebrews passages that, that people often turn to in 6 and 10 that, that talk about this idea that someone that, that people think say that you could lose your salvation, I think are saying exactly the opposite point. Understand that one of the issues here is that if you're going to claim that we as Christians can lose our right standing with God, that if we have an authentic, and we can't know, by the way, we don't know who has an authentic standing with God and who doesn't. We can only judge the outside. God knows. But that if someone has that right relationship with God, we're not only claiming that if we can wrest that from him, that he's a poor father, a worse father than I am, which I'm not willing to claim. But I've also got to say that he's an insufficient sacrifice. And that's what Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, I think, are emphasizing with what they say, is that you would, if you accept him, the, the freedom of who he is and his payment, in order to fall away, you would have to get another sin back on your record somehow. You've got to figure out how to get one of those sins that Jesus died for. You've got to figure out which ones he missed and he didn't die for, and you've got to get that on your record again somehow. 
that those, those would be the ones he missed. To me, it's also saying that Jesus is an insufficient sacrifice, that you're not getting it. Listen to the, um, by the way, I have lots more about this on my website, and I can't spend forever talking about it today, but a lot more of this passage about security and stuff. But what about this concept of a Savior? Listen to Titus 3, 3 through 8. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, listen to, listen to this section. Place, place responsibility where it goes in this section. Verse 5. Not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's the faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Notice that the good works come as a result of the truth of the change that's happened here. And the reliance is utterly on him. Of course, if my salvation was dependent upon me, not I could lose it. I would lose it. Of course I would. How hard would I be? How hard would it be to tempt me out of that salvation? A third donut? I mean, have you met you? Have, you, have we met ourselves to realize how poor we would be at this? None of us had the cast iron will that would be required to do this. It's, it's not something that we would be able to pull off. If it was possible for us to fall away, then every single one of us would. John 10, the passage we just read. Now you can see the imp, why I'm emphasizing this in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. That's a, that's a great like... Did I stutter? Kind of line from Jesus, in my opinion. I will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. Peter tells us that this, this inheritance that we have is protected by the power of God. So all you've got to do to lose this inheritance is somehow be more powerful than God. That would do it. All you've got to do is manage to wrest yourself out of the God the Son's hands. Actually, that won't do it. You also have to wrest yourself out of God the Father's hands. And they're one. So you've got to somehow get it out of both their hands simultaneously. Good luck with that. His, on the other hand, will never perish. No one snatches it from our hand. And by the way, the Greek here is the strongest way possible for him to say no. It's a doubling up of the concept. Um, uh, I was uh, I was talking to um, to Bob Livesey after after last week and discussing this passage, and he referenced this um, this one from uh, the Wizard of Oz. Like the language here is is not nobody, not know how. Like this is there's no way around this. It is a closed loop. It's done. I learned in seminary. My professor said this is this is the East Texas. Not no, but heck no. He, he didn't say heck. Not no, but heck no. This is, this is a no, this is a done. It's, this is not something that happens. They will never perish. Sealed. So th- those of you who, who wrestle with this, understand the significance of being set free by the security that God has placed on us in claiming us. As I walked away from studying this to try to figure out what I really believed on it, here's the kind of stuff that I ended up with. I would have to believe that though I had been sealed by the Holy Spirit, I am now forsaken. Adopted, but now abandoned. Purchased, and now returned. Betrothed, but now divorced. Saved, but lost anew. A new creation 
for whom the whole old has passed away and the new has come, but now the new has passed away and the old has returned. That I was dead in trespasses and sins, but God made me alive in Christ. But now I have overcome his life with death again. That I have wandered away from the great shepherd and he has not come for me. So I came to a conclusion that the salvation that Jesus Christ gives is secure forever. This passage, I think, makes that clear. This is a, it's a fascinating time to be gauging in this conversation. Understand that what this means is, unlike what the Wesley boys were afraid, is that, is that Christians would understand this and go, oh, well, then I don't have to do anything. Well, you don't have to. But is that how a relationship works? How many of your marriages are like that? Hey, now that we're married, I don't have to do anything. Well, probably more than should be, right? No, instead, now you get to. And here's what's cool. You get to be bad at it. You get to try and try and try and fail and fail and fail. And understanding that security is there. He's not letting go. That, to me, is significant. It allows us to invest in one another knowing that we're investing in eternity in one another. So this is, this is what, why this, this part of this passage is significant to me. This is why it matters that Jesus is who he says he is. Because if he's anybody else, he cannot hold on to our salvation. He cannot hold on to us forever. He cannot make promises like, I will give them eternal life and they will never die. Only God can make that promise. That's why it's significant. That's why we submit to him. The conclusion last week that that John Keeling made was that that's why we come to him so humble. I've got nothing to trade. I've got nothing to offer. John Redford and I have talked about before. Like I, I growing up, I hated the Little Drummer Boy song because I was just so irritating. But when I, for the first time, when I saw it portrayed graphically, actually by Animaniacs for people of my generation. The first time I saw it presented graphically and I realized that the purpose of the song is to get to the end and have the little boy, the little drummer boy go, I have no gifts to bring that are fit to give a king. I mean, I can play a drum and probably not well. And that's what Christ, the little baby Jesus smiles at in the song. It's a powerful message to us. Does he need our drums? No. Are we going to impress him with our drumming? Uh, No. But he loves us enough to love what we present to him. So whatever that is, however you need to respond, respond to his spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for letting us be involved in what you do. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to be engaged in your eternal work. I thank you that your son has proclaimed that he will give us eternal life. And Lord, there may be people in the room who aren't confident that they've made that decision, who have not called upon the name of the Lord. Um, God, you know our hearts. We can't know. Um, we, we can only judge the outside, and so we do our best. But you know. God, I pray if there's anybody in the room who doesn't know you, that you would convince their heart today to answer to you, to come to you, to follow you. And Father, I pray that... Um, the power of who you are and your willingness to choose us and and to seal us and to seek us out and to save us forever would be enough to inspire us to accept your hand and to follow your lead. Poorly, certainly. 
But at least we're following the right person, Lord, the person who can save us forever. And I pray that that, that would be the case. If there's anybody who's not made that decision, today would be the day of salvation. For those of us who have, that the truth of that would inspire us to new levels of good work, to mercy and patience, to forgiveness, and seek your face. Thank you for your son, Father, and thank you for involving us as well. So lead us now with whatever you have for us. We ask in his name.